open your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and that's on page 1,695. Your sermon notes uh, will contain contain verses 1 through 8, which will be our verses of focus. Uh, This section is uh, such a, a turning point section in the book of Acts, and the entire chapter, chapter 10, deserves to be read all at once, given that the whole story of Cornelius and Peter, and the work of God flows through this entire chapter. So, brothers and sisters, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Acts chapter 10, I'll be reading. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now... Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. 
As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the words. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So this is going to be a a five-part series in the book of Acts, in in the chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And the title is Epiphany, Pentecost for the Gentiles. Because that's what we see happening here, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, just like what happened in Acts chapter 2. First, we'll look at the vision of Cornelius. That's what we'll look at today. And in subsequent weeks, we'll look closely at Peter's vision. We'll see... And consider when Peter and Cornelius meet for the first time. We'll go closely looking at Peter's sermon. And then we'll look at the conversion of the first 
Gentiles recorded in the book of Acts. We don't know if he was indeed the first, but certainly the first recorded in the book of Acts. About this section of the book of Acts, the commentary tells us this. This section is one of the most important units in the book of Acts. Here the gospel goes out directly to a Gentile in his household for the first time. Everything is coordinated by God as was the case with Saul's conversion. The Spirit's coming upon the group independently of any action by Peter also confirms God's direction in what takes place. A point Peter makes very clear, makes very clearly when the controversial inclusion of the Gentiles is discussed later in chapter 11. In a sense, this scene is the book's turning point. As from here, the gospel will fan out in all directions to the people across a vast array of geographical regions, something Paul's three missionary journeys will underscore. I'm thankful for God's providence that we are arriving at this section of the book of Acts here this year during the season of Epiphany. The term Epiphany in the church calendar comes from a Greek word which means appearance or manifestation. In Western Christianity, that's where we are, in Western Christianity, the festival of Epiphany observed on the 6th of January, celebrates the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. The coming of the Magi to see the child Jesus is an example. The 12 days between Christmas and Epiphany have been called the 12 days of Christmas. Conversely, in much of Eastern Christianity, Epiphany is a celebration of the baptism of Jesus Christ, a recognition of his manifestation to humanity as the Son of God. In the early centuries before the observance of Christmas, Epiphany celebrated both the birth of Jesus and his baptism. So Epiphany stands before us in the Western tradition in the church calendar as a time to celebrate that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the Messiah of a provincial kingdom in the Middle East, but that he is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that his salvation goes out to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. What does that look like? How does that take place? We see that happening today in the life of Cornelius. So we're going to look at Cornelius' vision. We're going to see that he's a God-fearing Roman centurion. We're going to consider this in some depth as we look to him as an example. We're going to see his angelic vision Consider that together, and then we'll see that he obeys the vision that he has given. And then, as usual, some considerations for us to apply these truths to our own lives by God's grace. So, verses 1 and 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So here we see that Cornelius is highly commended by Luke. So as a respected Roman military leader in what we will see is a very important town, but also as a God-fearer who led his household in reverence, in diligence, in generosity, and in prayer, Cornelius arrives upon the scene here as a memorable figure in the history of gospel expansion. He has the significant distinction of being the first Gentile convert described to us in the book of Acts. And we see in Cornelius 
an unregenerate man outside the covenant who nonetheless is sincerely seeking the one true God. The Lord's hand is upon him. The Lord is enlightening him. The Lord is bringing him to the truth. Commentary says, an account given us of this Cornelius, who and what he was, who was the firstborn of the Gentiles to Christ. We are here told that he was a great man and a good man. Two characters that seldom meet, but here they did. And where they do meet, they put a luster upon each other. Goodness makes greatness truly valuable. And greatness makes goodness much more serviceable. So let's learn a little bit about Caesarea together. It's an important coastal Roman town. You may not remember, and I didn't put the map in today for space purposes, but Caesarea is a northern coast of the Mediterranean in, there in Palestine. And south of it on the coast also is Joppa. It's the two key towns today that we're going to be seeing in chapter 10 are coastal towns. And the communication up and down the coast we've already seen in prior sections of the book of Acts. And that continues in this section. So the commentary says the city of Caesarea is about 37 miles north of Joppa and had been built by Herod the first, he's known as Herod the Great, between approximately 22 and 10 BC at the site of the old Phoenician harbor. The Romans had conquered it and then they gave it to Herod. And then he named it after Augustus. The desire to express his loyalty to Rome can be seen not only in the name of the city, but also in the construction of a large temple erected on a massive platform, 100 by 90 meters, which was dedicated to the worship of Augustus and Roma, the personification of Rome. Josephus praises the beauty and the size of the temple, particularly the statue of Julius Caesar, which in his opinion compared favorably with the statue of Zeus in Olympia. Herod built a palace on a small peninsula south of the harbor, which was used after 86 by the Romans as praetorium. This is the place where the provincial ruler would live. Caesarea had, Caesarea had the typical infrastructure of a Roman provincial capital. So it's the capital of that Roman province, a very important coastal town and the capital of a province. And because of its coastal location, you can understand the great wealth, the merchant activity that would be taking place there as well. As a typical Roman provincial capital, it included a large marketplace known as the Agora, a theater which could seat 3,500 spectators. And you can see this on Google Earth to this day. They've, they've opened it up and done archaeological work there. Faces right out into the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's a grand, grand thing to see. There's also a large amphitheater which was larger than the Colosseum in Rome. So it begins to get you, give you a sense of how important this town is. And that, remember, the military group that would be here, how important they would be given the importance of this town, begins to reflect on Cornelius as a leader within this military legion. The seat of the Roman governor of the province of Judea, called the Praetorium, was located inside Herod's palace. The large harbor complex played an important role in international shipping of that day. 
Numerous large warehouses had been built to store wheat, wine, and other goods before being loaded on the ships. So imagine being a tanner in this town and how important that work would be for that time frame. Caesarea had about 30,000 inhabitants, mostly Syrian Greeks, some Samaritans, Roman soldiers, and a large Jewish minority. Most Greek and Roman deities were worshipped in Caesarea. An inscription confirms that Pontius Pilate erected a temple there dedicated to Tiberius. Peter's vision visit to Caesarea took place around A.D. 37. So that gives us a little bit of background about this very important provincial capital, the large Roman structures that would have been built there. There was also a big, giant hippodrome where they would race, and you can still see that uh, when you look at it from above. There's a Caesarea National Park you can go to, even to this day, to see this place. You can see the man-made harbor, which is one of the most amazing things of that day in terms of what Herod was able to do to create these promontories, these jetties, these man-made jetties that went out far enough because there was no natural harbor along that coast and Herod overcame that through his work. So it's an amazing town with an amazing history and this is where Cornelius lives with his family in this town as an important part of the Roman military leadership in the town. Let's talk about what it means to be a centurion. You've heard this phrase before. Commentary says the cohort legion, it's called a cohort legion, was the Roman army's primary fighting force in the late Republican and imperial periods. And it had about 5,000 to 6,000 men in this particular group. Now the basic fighting unit was comprised of 10 cohorts of 480 men. So within this larger legion, there would be 10 cohorts, and each cohort was made up of around 480 men, or exactly 480 men. Each cohort contained six centuries of 80 men each. So within the cohort, there was a century with 80 men. Not 100, as the name century implies. The smallest unit was called the Contuberneum, made up of eight men who shared living quarters and food. So you can see in modern military terms, we'd call that a squad. That would be a squad-sized group. Ten contubernia made up one century. So there's ten squads, if you will, in each century, commanded by a centurion. So we begin to see that a century is about like a company-sized operation in today's, or, or maybe a platoon in today's numbering. Legions also contained 120 mounted scouts, according to Josephus. Each legion was given a name that reflected some distinct trait, whether of the emperor who formed it, or for its extraordinary valor, or for its region of service. So, in summary, one legion, that's five to 6,000 men, has 10 cohorts. And each cohort has, about, has 480 men. Each cohort has six centuries, and one century has 80 men and a centurion would be the leader of those 80 men. So each centurion was commanded, each centurion, or no, each century was commanded by a centurion. Commentary says, a soldier had to serve between 12 and 20 years in the legions and auxiliary troops in order to advance to the rank of centurion. So begin to learn some more 
about Cornelius and his experience and what he's done. As a non-commissioned officer, the centurion was linked between the officers and the troops. And on, a, on account, both of his position and his experience, he embodied the professional military spirit. So, Cornelius had made his way up the Roman military ranks over these years to a position somewhat similar to a modern U.S. Army first sergeant, an E-8. The Army website tells us that the first sergeant is the principal NCO and lifeblood of a company. He is the disciplinarian and the counselor. He instructs other sergeants, advises the commander, and helps train all enlisted soldiers. He assists officers at the company level, which is about 62 to 190 soldiers. I think we can get a sense, a better sense now, of what his life would have been like at that time as a, a Roman NCO who has a lot of experience, and anyone with military experience knows that without the experienced NCOs, there would be no real military order. Good officers are made good officers by good NCOs. Anyone who has been in the military knows that when you come into a new place as a new officer, you've got your training, you've got your background, but you know that those good NCOs are critical to good military activity. So what regiment were they were in? It was called the Italian Regiment, as we've said. These legions can be named after locations from which they arise, or perhaps after a leader that brought them into existence, or perhaps acts of valor. Well, this is the Italian Regiment. And I want us to note again Luke's attention to detail as a historian. Brothers and sisters, the book of Acts is not only divinely inspired scripture, it is also divinely inspired history. It is the most reliable history. It is the only infallible history. If you want to know history, start with your Bible. Commentary says several Italian cohorts are attested for the Roman army. The Italian cohort in which Cornelius served was probably the cohorts two, a regiment that is attested by a funerary inscription from near Vienna, Austria. So we do see historical records of an Italian cohort, but even if we didn't, we would know that it existed. So now about Cornelius. He's a devout man who feared God with all of his household. That's how he's described. So what this word devout speaks of one who's pious, who's dutiful, He's godly. He performs the activities of religious service expected of the pious. So he and his family were faithful in their ongoing investigation into the true God and true religion. They were on the proselyte pathway. Being devout, he likely would have attended all available avenues for Gentiles to inquire into the Word of God and into true religion. And he would have done this with all of his household. Commentary says, this Cornelius was a proselyte of the gate or such as observed the seven precepts of Noah and lived without giving any offense to the Jews. It's Matthew Poole. So what are these seven precepts? They're called the Noahide Laws. And according to the Britannica Encyclopedia, beginning with Genesis 2.16, the Babylonian Talmud listed the first six commandments as prohibitions against idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, and robbery, and then the positive command to establish courts of justice with all that this implies, and then after the flood, a seventh commandment given to Noah forbade the eating of flesh cut from a living animal. So this 
is what we learned from the commentary from Poole, that he was either a proselyte or one who was adhering to the laws of Noah or both. Now, he's not doing this alone. and This is meaningful. It's a part of how Luke commends him. He's doing it with all his household. This is what good men do. Commentary says Cornelius practiced his piety with his entire household, which suggests that his wife and children also worshipped Yahweh. We don't know. Another commentary says, and this is from Calvin, we must not lightly pass over this commendation that Cornelius had a church in his house, and surely a true worshiper of God will not suffer so much as in him lieth God to be banished from his house. So good men see to the worship of God within their homes. And they don't allow for the blasphemy of the one true God within their homes. So why did he do this? The text tells us that he feared God. And this is the one true God. Cornelius, by God's grace, has been brought to believe in the Most High God as his creator and judge. Cornelius has been granted this rational sense, by God's grace, a rational sense and urge to be at peace with God. The awareness that he needed to be at peace with the one creator God had been brought to his soul. He's left the Roman gods behind. He knows he cannot find this peace with God there. And he has turned to the one true God of the Jews, and yet he's still a Gentile. Commentary says he was a God-fearer. That is, he worshipped Israel's God. Since Cornelius is later described as having an excellent reputation among the Jewish people, and since Luke's use of the expression God-fearer often describes Gentiles who sympathize with the Jewish faith, Luke describes Cornelius as a Roman officer who worshipped the God of the Jews. Now this is really important and it's worth noting. It tells us more about his, his courage and his boldness that he's developing. The life of Roman centurion was an active life. It was not a quiet life. It was an active life of paganism. Cornelius' departure from Roman forms of worship would have been very noticeable to those around him. He would have been absent for the typical things that they would have done. Commentary says, a Roman military camp was a religious microcosm. The soldiers worshipped the deified concept of the centuria and of the legion, the spirit of the legionary standards, the eagle as symbol of Jupiter and the power of Rome, the gods of Rome, Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, the war gods, Mars and Victoria, Janus and Dea Roma, personifications of relevant virtues such as fides and disciplina, the emperor of the genius of the emperor, and, depending on personal preferences, the deities of the region or the city in which the cohort was stationed. So Rome was not an atheistic culture in any way at all. Rome was a polytheistic culture, and they worshipped these false gods actively as a part of their military culture. So we can see that Cornelius has been drawn out of that. Brothers and sisters, does our understanding of humanity leave room for God-fearers in our midst? What was the understanding of one who feared God at that time? Well, we know it's one that God is drawing to himself from out of unbelief, from out of paganism. Pastor Kaiser says he attended synagogue regularly. He certainly was a regular synagogue attendee. That's the meaning of the technical phrase God-fearer in verses 2 and 22. It referred to a Gentile who was not yet converted, but who regularly attended the synagogue. 
They weren't called Jews because they hadn't converted yet, but they were called God-fearers. In today's world, how would we think of such a person? This would be a person, family, regularly attending Christian worship, believing in the Most High God, not showing up with no faith whatsoever, but believing that there is a true God, sincerely seeking God and seeking to love God and neighbor, yet still not born again from above by faith in Christ, not baptized, not partaking of the Lord's Supper, not brought into covenant membership. So do you see, can you imagine here how the Lord works in different ways over time to convert His elect? And will we have the wisdom to understand this and to patiently love and enfold God-fearers into our midst and to welcome them and have a place for them and a way to engage with them as God draws them to Himself? And even as we're engaging with those around us and Living as evangelists, but we have this wisdom to understand that this is how God sometimes draws people to himself. But what else about Cornelius? He didn't just talk about being generous. He gave alms generously. This was something that was known about him. He didn't just talk about loving his neighbors. He attempted to live out this pious life that was being presented before him in the scriptures. He sought to do it. By giving away his own money, he showed his trust toward God and his care for his fellow man that God was developing in him. Commentary says, he generously gave alms to people, which is often taken in terms of the Jewish people, but it is possible, however, that his generosity extended to the soldiers in his unit and to the Greeks living in the city, which would make sense. He was a generous man who didn't just talk about doing good, but was known to be a true helper to those around him, to have his eyes open for the needs of those around him. And as we'll see, his faith had begun to spread to others because his closest soldier helper who attended to him was also a God-fearer. Another description of Cornelius that commends him to us as an example is that he always prayed to God. Now, this phrase is likely a reference to Cornelius and his family regularly regularly attending the public times of prayers at synagogue. And if not always, then regularly. But would also likely extend to Cornelius' daily life. So even if he wasn't present at the public prayers, he was praying at home at that time, which is what we will see actually took place when the angel appeared to him. He was praying at home during the time of public prayers. You can see that that pattern had influenced his family life. Commentary says he was much in prayer. He prayed to God always. He kept up stated times for prayer and was constant to them. Note, wherever the fear of God rules in the heart, it will appear both in works of charity and of piety. And neither will excuse us from the other. Is that true of you, that charity and piety are both taking place in your life. That you don't excuse being selfish because you read your Bible all the time. Or you don't excuse turning away from God's Word and the worship and prayers to Him because you often are out serving and doing good for Him. No. The root of worship will always lead to the fruit of service. So in summary, with Cornelius, we see a man in whom the Lord has already worked mightily by His Spirit, convicting him of the falsehood of Roman paganism 
and drawing him and his family into the old covenant dispensation of acceptable biblical worship of God. This is evidenced by his regular presence at the synagogue for prayers and worship with his family and by his regular giving of alms to the poor. Cornelius has been made ready to learn of his Savior and Cornelius will bypass becoming a Jewish proselyte as he enters God's kingdom. And so when Peter preaches to him later, he's preaching to him the things that he would have been learning from the Old Testament scriptures about Messiah, about all of this restorative system of sacrificial worship is just pointing to the Messiah. And Cornelius has the great benefit and pleasure of coming straight to his Messiah because Messiah has come. And this is what Peter teaches him in his sermon that we'll see. So what happens? I think we have a sense now of who Cornelius is, what God has already done in his life. Listen to the angelic vision. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius! And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So, the vision comes to Cornelius. We see here during the daylight hours, around 3 p.m., it looks as though Cornelius would take time during his day to seek the Lord throughout his day. We know from verse 30 that Cornelius was praying inside his home. So he was at his home praying when the angel appeared to him. It was about the ninth hour of the day, the commentary says, at three o'clock in the afternoon, which is with us an hour of business and conversation. But then, because it was in the temple, the time of offering the evening sacrifice, it was made by devout people an hour of prayer. See, even in the home. To intimate that all our prayers are to be offered up in the virtue of the great sacrifice of Christ. Cornelius was now at prayer, so he tells us himself in verse 30. Now, we're told that it was clearly a vision. He's got a very clear look at this angel. He sees this angel very clearly that God sends to him. So we know that this is not some self-induced false trance. It's a real angel from heaven. The veil of heaven is brought back and he's, been, he's made able to see the angel. And it wasn't a dream of a sleeper, but rather a vision of one who was wide awake. Commentary says that he saw him evidently with his bodily eyes, not in a dream presented to his imagination, but in a vision presented to his sight. For his greater satisfaction, it carried its own evidence along with it. So there's different ways that God manifests himself to us on earth throughout scriptures. And this one here is a vision in that he sees the angel with his own eyes. Next, we see that the angel calls Cornelius by name. This should comfort us. And given the glorious and majestic appearance of the angel, that would have been comforting. And then, of course, his sudden appearance from nowhere. Cornelius describes him in verse 30 as kind of coming out of nowhere in this bright clothing. So he's afraid, as you can imagine, yet surely comforted to be called by his own name, knowing that heaven knows of him. This brings to us the combination of transcendence and imminence that is only available to us through Christ our Savior. He called him by his name Cornelius, 
commentary says, to intimate the particular notice that God took of him individually. Yet, even in his fear, he's not struck speechless. He doesn't fall down dead like some do when angels appear to them. But he does note the superiority of this being, both through his submissive question and his submissive titling of the angel as Lord. So he knows that this is someone whom he must obey. Commentary says, Cornelius responds to the supernatural appearance of the heavenly being with taut attention, fear, and incomprehension expressed in the question, what is it, Lord? Cornelius does not know whom he sees and what the appearance of the heavenly being means. The address, Lord, is more than a polite address. It reflects the willingness to obey any instructions that he might be given. So his faith in the one true God is still present. He believes that this being has come to him from God. Next, we learn from the angel that the prayers and the generosity of an unregenerate yet sincere seeker have come up before the Lord as a memorial, we're told. That is, as a pleasing aroma before God, which is referencing the Old Testament sacrificial worship system. Cornelius is experiencing the fruits of seeking after God wholeheartedly. The light that he's been given, the faith that he does have, is being expressed towards God in sincerity, seeking the one true God in sincerity and in truth. He is remembering the one, <coughs> the one true God in all of his life. And so the one true God remembers him. Commentary says, The angel assures Cornelius that God has heard his prayers and taken notice of his piety, evidenced by his almsgiving. The Greek term translated as memorial offering is used in the Septuagint to translate a Hebrew term from Leviticus, which is best understood in the sense of invocation by name in connection with the portion of the grain offering, which consisted of a handful of flour mixed with oil to which incense was added, which was then burned on the altar. As the sacrificial portion was set aside for Yahweh, it was consecrated by the invocation of Yahweh's name, an invocation which represented an appeal that as the Israelite who remembered Yahweh during the sacrifice, that Yahweh would graciously remember the one bringing the sacrifice and accept the offering. So this non-Jew, this Gentile, is being told by this angel that his prayers are compared to what happens in the sacrificial system. Commentary goes on, the verb ascended supports this interpretation. So Cornelius' acts of charity and prayers, because of his faith in the one true God, constituted a remembrance of the reality of Israel's God and thus an appeal to God's beneficial attention, expecting God's blessing. The angel assures Cornelius that God has noticed his devotion to him and is about to bless him. So Cornelius is drawing near to God. And God is drawing near to Cornelius. Next, we see the result of these prayers and actions. God has a man, Simon Peter, nearby in Joppa, who will tell Cornelius what he must do. So even Peter's arrival in Joppa, what we've read about already, even his arrival there is a part, if you will. You can see how God is connecting that to Cornelius' prayers, drawing him there. He's ministering, and he doesn't realize it. 
Cornelius is asking for him to come, essentially. He need only to send men to Joppa and ask Simon Peter to come. He doesn't ask questions. What? Why don't you just tell me? The angel gives Cornelius the detailed whereabouts. Very simple. Can't be too many Simons who are tanners who live on the sea in that city. So he tells him exactly where to go, basically. He tells him what, brothers and sisters, he tells him what he must do. So even though Cornelius has been accepted thus far, he must go on to believe in Christ. The fulfillment of the Old Testament system of atonement and obedience that Cornelius has piously studied and observed up to this point. He must go on and trust in Christ. Had Christ not yet come, he, would have, he must have gone on to circumcision. He must have gone on and trusted in the Messiah and demonstrated through taking on all the forms of the Old Testament system. But it is not now necessary for him to do this. And this is an important thing for us to see because the debate will come during these, this time of overlap of the covenants when the old covenant is still in effect, not yet destroyed, and yet the new covenant has come and there's this overlap during this New Testament time. So much of the controversy in the New Testament can be understood by understanding that there's overlapping of covenants at this time. And here we know for sure that a Greek is not required to become a Jew before they come to Jesus Christ. Right? A Greek is not required to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And that was a great controversy, as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. And it bears on today as well. Listen to the commentary. Cornelius prays and gives alms in the fear of God, is religious himself and keeps up religion in his family, and all this so as to be accepted of God in it. And yet there is something further that he ought to do. He ought to embrace the Christian religion now that God has established it among men. Not, he may do it if he pleases. It will be an improvement and entertainment to him, but he must do it. It is indispensably necessary to his acceptance with God for the future though he has been accepted in his services hitherto. He that believed the promise of the Messiah must now believe the performance of that promise. Now that God has given a further record concerning his son than what had been given in the Old Testament prophecies, he requires that we receive this when it is brought to us. And now neither our prayers nor our alms can come up for a memorial before God unless we believe in Jesus So Cornelius had been trusting in that Old Testament sacrificial system. And as he had been living in his life, he'd been trusting in the atoning work of these sacrifices. He'd been trusting in God's mercy as he was going through this proselyte process. And he's going to be brought to see what all of that, who all of that is pointing to. Next, I want us to note that the angel does not preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Think about this. Angels help us to do God's will. We know this. They're here now. And you know what I'm going to say. Wouldn't you love to see an angel someday? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God would open up heaven and and we could see them here with us? And when we sang together, we could hear their voices too. They're with us. They help us in ways that we can't see. But angels are not the ones tasked with the Great Commission. Sinless angels who speak perfectly what they've been told to speak and who could far better 
accomplish the task than us are not given the task. We fallen ones, we redeemed ones, have a story to tell of redemption. So in that sense, angels cannot do it like we can. It's worth noting. Commentary says, Cornelius is now an angel from heaven talking to him, and yet he must not receive the gospel of Christ from this angel, nor be told by him what he ought to do, but all that the angel has to say is, send for Peter, and he shall tell thee. And when we look at what's going on, for example, in the Muslim world right now, and even in the Hindu world, so often we're hearing stories of dreams or visions, and so often they're told to go to such and such place or talk to such and such person and to hear of Jesus. So it fits all of these stories that we're hearing that are proliferating. If you go in, we can talk about it afterwards, but it's just story after story of what's going on in the world right now and how God is saving hundreds if not thousands or hundreds of thousands of souls through his work in this way right now. Going on. As the former observation puts a mighty honor upon the gospel, so does this upon the gospel ministry. It was not to the highest of angels, but to those who were less than the least of all saints that this grace was given to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We get to do that, brothers and sisters. That the excellency of the power might be of God. So in our weakness, as we proclaim this glorious gospel, we demonstrate very clearly that the glory and the power is from God because it's so clearly not from us. What happens next? Cornelius obeys the vision. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he immediately obeys. And you can tell even more providence here that his home is ready. He's got faithful servants who are ready to go. I mean, if you needed to find three people quickly to go on a journey, a journey like this, could you find three people? in your life, who could do this for you? So as soon as the angel departs, Cornelius straightway obeys the heavenly vision, sending men to Joppa. And as we've seen numerous times already, obedience is displayed by immediate action. The moment that we understand God's commandment to us, we promptly obey Him. We don't delay. Commentary says, when He sent. When was it? As soon as ever the angel which spoken to him had departed, Without dispute, without delay, he was obedient to the heavenly vision. He perceived by what the angel said he was to have some further work prescribed him, and he longed to have it told him. He made haste and delayed not to do this commandment. In any affair wherein our souls are concerned, it is good for us not to lose time. It is good for us where our souls are concerned not to lose time. Next. At least one of the three men whom he sends appears to be a God-fearer, a devout soldier, we are told. And it's likely that the other two that are sent are also on their way or either believers. Who did he send, the commentary says? Two of his household servants who all feared God and a devout soldier, one of those that waited on him continually. Observe here, a devout centurion had devout soldiers. A little devotion commonly goes a great way with soldiers, but there would be more of it in the soldiers if there were more, but more of it in the commanders. You've seen this here before, haven't you? Those of you who have military experience or who have been a part of organizations, you've seen how much leaders influence 
going on. Officers in an army that have such a great power over the soldiers as we find the centurion had have a great opportunity of promoting religion, at least of restraining vice and profaneness in those under their command if they would but improve it. Note here, when this centurion had to choose some of his soldiers to attend his person and to be always about him, who did he choose? He pitched upon such of them as were devout. They shall be preferred and countenanced to encourage others to be so. So what can we learn? What principles do we see from today's text that we can bring into our lives and go forth and grow in Christ-likeness and serve Him with greater faith and with uh, greater unselfishness and with greater humility? First, I hope that we will note God's beautiful providence in Cornelius' life. First, consider the general providence of the Roman Empire predicted in prophetic messages throughout the Old Covenant writings God faithful to bring this great empire to the earth whose certainly chief purpose was to serve as a sending a sending venue a conveyance for the gospel and to demonstrate that the gospel is greater than the greatest earthly kingdom But then specific providence in the life of this man Cornelius and how God had brought him to this point in this city at this time to be the one that would be the first demonstration of the prophecies fulfilled of Epiphany. The prophecy that the Gentiles, those who sat in darkness, would see a great light. Brothers and sisters, are we resting in God's providence? His grand plan, His epic plan to deliver this earth fully into the hands of Jesus, His resurrected King, the one who is reigning, under whose feet the Father is placing all of the Son's enemies. Do we rest in this providence? It should bring us great peace. Not just the general providence, but the specific providences of our lives. And how he's using each of us to bring the gospel into the lives of others. Next, I want us to note Cornelius outside the covenant living faithfully according to that light that had been given to him. Are we living faithfully according to God's work in us? Are you taking hold of the light that he has brought to you and improving, cooperating with His Spirit in the work of sanctification in your life? Do we, like Cornelius, have growing hearts of reverential fear toward God? Do we, like Cornelius, show diligence to participate in the life of God's church? Word, prayer, worship, the public assembly of the saints like he did. Are we like Cornelius with household faithfulness, bringing forth the Word of God and the prayers in our home day in and day out? Lives of prayer, lives in the Word, lives of worship in our homes. Men, I specifically charge you to examine yourselves in light of Cornelius. And ask yourself if as a covenant member in God's church, baptized receiving the Lord's Supper, 
receiving all the grace of God in your life, does your home stack up to Cornelius, one who was outside the covenant? I charge you to consider yourself, all of us, in light of Cornelius. Do we live lives of prayer like Cornelius did? And I don't just mean the typical meaning of the word prayer, but we see that even his alms served as prayers. Our lives can be lives remembered before God so that we are consciously, day by day, moment by moment, living before Him. Next. Should it be that one outside the covenant like Cornelius should live a life of love and service that would be more faithful than those within the covenant like us? Let us consider ourselves, brothers and sisters. May we grow up in Christ as a result of considering Cornelius. Next. Are we welcoming toward those sincere seekers who have yet to come to faith in Christ? Do we have, if you will, a court of the Gentiles prepared in our hearts and lives? Because, you know, when you look at the layout of the temple, that space surrounding the temple was enormous. And Solomon's colonnade, which we've talked about, Solomon's porch, was a part of that. And that whole place was for Gentiles. They were welcome to come near. Now, there was a spot. If they went past it, the sign said, you can be put to death for coming past this, past this spot. They were very serious. We're going to see that as we go on in the book of Acts and why it's so hard for them to overcome the distinction between Jew and Gentile because there was a wall. There was a physical wall there and there was a sign on it. If you went past it, it warned you. Foreigners could be put to death for going past this spot. But do we have, if you will, a court of Gentiles prepared in our hearts and lives? Do we have a, a large space in our lives for those are seeking God? Do we have a large space in our church for those who are seeking God? Do we seek to prepare such a space? But we should be even more welcoming. Where this metaphor falls down, we should be far more welcoming than the Jewish temple with its wall of separation. The only wall of separation now is trusting in Christ or not. And this could be why Jesus probably is associated with why Jesus was so passionate when he turned over the tables and said, my house is to be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations. And it's very likely that he did this in the court of the Gentiles is where it happened. We know that he was in the temple space. Next, do we live, do we live as if Christ has broken down the middle wall of separation? Because that's not just about Jew and Gentiles being brought together, but between all mankind. There are many kinds of walls of separation between us and others. Perhaps it's skin color. Perhaps it's socioeconomic status. Perhaps it's political views. Perhaps it's national citizenship. The gospel overcomes and unites us if Jew and Gentile can be united. Remember, we'll put you to death if you come through here. Any human barriers can be overcome by the gospel. Next. What if we all, right here, right now, pulled out our checkbooks and all of our spending records and took a couple of hours to just share with one another all of our spending records? Categorize it, put it into the various spending categories, and just look at it all together. Do you think we would be known, or maybe we could take it out and put it in the newspaper, 
and let all the people of uh, Edgefield see how Foothill spends its money. Not just the church budget, but our personal budgets as well. Would we be known like Cornelius as those who give generously to care for the poor and the suffering? Would we be known for those as that kind of person? Do we give cheerfully? And this is in reference both to tithes and offerings. Tithes, those things, that percentage of your, your annual revenues, uh, are, which are required to be given to God's church. And then offerings, those things which are beyond the tithe. Do you do this cheerfully? Do you consider this in your life as a way of expressing to God your gratitude to Him? Motivated by love. Remembering that God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And it appears as though Cornelius serves as an example to us of this kind of person. Next, do we trust God's promise in this scripture? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4.8. Cornelius drew near to God with his life, remembering God in his affairs, not just in his piety, right, but also in his charity. He drew near to God with all of his life, and God responds to his sincere seeking. Let us be encouraged by Cornelius to seek the Lord. Let us be like David. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged by what Cornelius went through to know that if one outside the covenant, yet to be fully brought into the covenant, apparently not yet born again, if one such as him can draw near and have God draw near to him, can we not also expect as well? Even more so. And in this, let's do so remembering that the Lord knows us by name, each one of us, Cornelius, outside the covenant, known by name. How much more so us. Next. Have you ever taken time to study and ponder the angelic beings the Lord has created and sent to help us, his children? You know, we can, we can be materialists. We can think like, have that atheistic mindset like those around us. Or we can think with Bible thoughts. We can see with Bible eyes. Because this should be of great encouragement to us. Hebrews 1.14, about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? God sends forth these angels for you and me, brothers and sisters, to minister to us who are inheriting salvation, to help us. I do believe that it's a biblical concept of specific angels given to watch after specific people. Okay, I'm not dogmatic about that, but it makes sense. In either case, angels watch out for us. Angels are sent to help you. That should be of great encouragement to you. You might not ever talk to them until after you die, but they are there and they are helping you. They are here now, helping us even now. Next. I hope we understand that a Cornelius-like life of faithfulness is not enough to establish peace with God. This text is not teaching that Cornelius' faithfulness in prayer and almsgiving is what earned him favor with God. Cornelius will go on to see what he must to do. That's what the text says. Have all here, brothers and sisters, have all here crossed this threshold? Trusting in Christ as their only hope? 
not relying on your piety or your charity, but relying only upon Christ's piety and charity. Only upon Christ's work upon the cross for you. As we heard in the prayer, rejoicing the forgiveness of sin, He has taken our burdens upon Himself and He has destroyed them. And given to us all of His righteousness, thus bringing us in and making us God's friend. Atonement, the forgiveness of sins. Propitiation, making us God's friends. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you gone on to trust in Christ? Because really we need to be very careful to distinguish. We all have a tendency to do this because we're such sinful legalists in our flesh. We think we can make God obliged to us. We think we can become the master and God can become the servant like what Adam wanted to accomplish. Like what Absalom wanted to do to David. We're all like that. We think if we can just do enough good things, God becomes our servant. He must do what we want if we do enough good things. He's bound by it. In other words, are we careful to distinguish the root from the fruit? Because the root of all of this is God's grace, brothers and sisters. The only reason any of us are safe, forgiven, accepted is because of God's sovereign, unmerited grace over our lives. He has chosen in His kindness to save us. And when He saved us, we were His enemies. We were not those who were demonstrating some qualities that separated us out from others so that He chose to save us. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses when He saved us. And it is this root, being born again from above, granted faith in Christ, justified, forgiven of all of our sins by Him, that springs forth unto gratitude. We must know how great our sins and misery are. We must know how to be delivered from our sins and misery in Christ. And then we can go on to learn from His Word how to express our gratitude for such great salvation. Let's be careful to distinguish the root from the fruit. Next, are we eager to be evangelists? Are you eager to be an evangelist? I'll tell you, I think as I've considered our church, I think we're weak in this area. I think we need to grow up as individuals, families, and as a church in our evangelistic efforts to be a part, a greater part of the Great Commission, of bringing the lost souls into the kingdom. Yes and amen, we always want to be available and advancing in our discipleship of those who know Christ. But I think we need to grow up in our evangelistic efforts. Are we eager to be evangelists, remembering the great honor that we've been given to speak of Christ and of His kingdom? This honor has not been given to angels, these glorious creatures. It's been given to us. Do you have a story to tell do you have sadness in your life that the great comforter has overcome? Do you have anxieties in your soul that the God of peace has conquered? Do you have the guilt of sin that God has removed from your life in Christ and brought to you the happiness of heaven? 
Do you have a story to tell? If so, you'll be an evangelist. For it is gratitude that opens our mouths. It's gratitude that opens our mouths to speak of his greatness. We can speak of him and his kingdom. And we should be so grateful that he would allow lips like these to speak of one like him. Next, like Cornelius, are we quick to obey the Lord's commands with promptness and with wisdom? Do you delay? Do you rationalize? Or when God brings conviction to your soul that a change is needed, do you do it or do you resist? Consider that. Next. And this is one question that will be a part of all of these sermons because it has to do with Christ as the great king of all. The one who didn't just save a region of the earth, but who saved the whole earth. And the one to whom not just a little bit of authority has been given, but all authority, not just on all the earth, but in all heaven. That he is the reigning king and sovereign of all the cosmos. Do we realize this about our great Savior? Do we understand this and live this out in our lives? Remembering Psalm 72, 8, that great epiphany scripture, 8, 9, and 11. I'll give you these quotes and then I'll pray. What do we know about the Lord Jesus Christ? He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. His enemies will lick the dust. Yes, all kings shall fall down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. Ukraine, Russia, China, the United States of America, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, Canada, Australia, you could name some more. Every nation will serve Him. Every knee will bow before Him. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, the bloggers, the vloggers, every football coach, every baseball coach, every public school teacher, every private school teacher, every pastor, every political leader, every father, every mother, every son, every daughter, every family, every church, every nation, every square inch of this globe is His. And every heart shall see Him and worship Him. And prayers shall be made to him so long as the sun and the moon endure. There is no one like our Savior. May we remember this as we go forth and remember what he's done for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He died for us. He knows our name. And he who gave us his only son, will he not also with him give us all things freely? Go forth in confidence, in hope, brothers and sisters filled with the knowledge that Christ is our great King, seeking to be like Cornelius and trusting that God will help us to grow in all of these areas because He loves us and He's doing this good work. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise You and thank You that You have the victory over the devil, that when the serpent lied in the garden, you and your great and awesome truth have come forth in Christ, the seed 
to bring forth the victory and the restoration of even more than that which was lost. And that the devil has been placed under your feet and all of your enemies are being placed under your feet, including our flesh. Oh, we look to you and ask that we would be those who because of love towards you, because of gratitude, would grow and excel in sanctification, demonstrating both piety and charity more and more in our lives. Grow us as evangelists, we pray, O God. Bless us to grow up and to be sanctified in all the ways that we need to be, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.